look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. Welcome to another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. I'm here with my partner, Andrew Masson, Faisal away uh, for the weekend. Andrew, welcome, and thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me today, Dave. Uh, we've got a good show today. You know, we're going to talk about, as we age, things happen, uh, things change just naturally. One of those things that changes is our eyesight, um, and that uh, that creates some problems. Uh, the question is, what can we do about that, and um, you know, how do we work around these changes? I want to chat a little bit with Jamie Golenbeck uh, about how you can lose money on investment, but you can still possibly use it to save on your taxes. Um, and that's mm-hmm. applicable to more situations than many people think. Absolutely. Um, you know, if you think about return or taxes, and, you know, uh, especially in retirement, a lot of things change, Dave. And one of the main things is um, you can have a return, um, but uh, maybe you get 5%, but uh, you save. 20 or 30 percent in taxes depending on how you do things right that's real return in your pocket well and sometimes we don't get the investments right people have losses the question is what can you do with those losses particularly if you had debt to fund some of those we'll talk about yeah. that we're going to look at a way that the uh, baby boom generation is reshaping canada's housing market we talk a lot about that there's been lots of changes in the mortgage market we've got lots of people that help their kids out you know get into a house it's a it's a really interesting conversation stick yeah. around for that for sure Okay, so let's. Um, I want to raise a topic today. Um, we often talk about things we've talked to clients about. And a few weeks back, I was uh, in a meeting with uh, some clients, and they had a situation where uh, one of their friends, um, a couple, he passed away suddenly. Mm-hmm. And he was the one in the relationship that was primarily responsible for the finances. And. Um, one of the things that was absent in their financial planning uh, was any life insurance. Okay. And so in this particular case, and this isn't an insurance thing, it's in this particular case, um, surviving spouse, wife in this case, got a bit of a surprise that there, was, there wasn't much there. Okay. okay? Uh, what, what do you do now? Yeah. Okay. So th- this turned out to be a, a problem and in sort of an ugly surprise, but it raises a question and, and we were talking about this uh, this week as well, um, about, I don't know what you call this, partner or spouse due diligence, right? Or keeping abreast of, uh, you know, this should be a joint uh, activity. Anything when it comes to investment um, or finance, whether it be the bank account right down to, you know, who's got what should be a, a topic for conversation, especially going through retirement. But, you know, starting at an early age for that matter, Dave. And what I mean by that is, you know, we should be having those conversations before we get married right. with our spouses or individuals. So we're on the same page consistently together. Now, there's always one spouse that tends to do less, or I tend one. to notice yep. that on, on general. But... I know I spend a lot of time trying to get people involved in a financial plan and having both Mr. and Mrs. or Mr. and Mr. or Mrs. and Mrs. come in right. and have a big conversation around what's going on and invite them back on a regular basis to say, hey, what's going on? What's changed? And sort of open up that right. that, that ball again. But, you know, with with that particular client, you know, my, my heart goes out to that person simply because, hey, you weren't aware. Um, and this is what's fallen on on, and, on on you. Yeah, and I, I have to tell you, um, the partners typically bring in different points of view, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, generally speaking, we see one of the partners um, who's a little bit more aggressive in their risk profile than the other. 
Um, you've got, uh, you know, one of the partners perhaps it's a little bit more focused on lifestyle issues, maybe it's family than the other. And that's okay. The strengths and weaknesses, the diversity amongst people well, or is, the, actually, is actually positive. Or, or what I call the yin and the yang. You know, yeah. I'm the yin and my wife's the yang. It's, right. it's, it's how it carries it forward. Right. So, it, you know, it's, it's an issue, uh, like you just said, I, I, listening to this story, um, you know, you're, you're just, your heart goes out and you go, oh, you know, that's, that's too bad. Um, the, the case that, uh, you know, we have talked about in past, we've seen a case in past where there isn't full disclosure and there's problems behind the scenes. And, you know, when you go through a financial planning conversation, um, sometimes you get a, you, there, you need full disclosure on this stuff, right? You yep. do. We say we need full disclosure in order to do a proper plan. It's a bit of the idea of if we put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out, that old adage. Okay? But if there isn't full disclosure amongst the partners, then, the, then there can be these surprises. Now, it's not even that it was a, a wrong decision. I'm not even suggesting that. If both parties had made the choice that we don't want to invest in life insurance and we'll take that risk, mm -hmm. okay, and then that risk showed up, then that's, that's one thing. But if it's it's the case where one person was sort of excluded, uh, either they excluded themselves or they were excluded by the other partner in that thought process and decision making, then we can end up with these ugly surprises, right? And nobody wants that. Well, nobody does, and you know the reality is is um, these things do happen. Unfortunately, I hate to say it, but you know um, we'd all like to think we're going to pass away at the same time, and then everything will be taken right. care of. It's nice and neat, and it's clean. Um, but generally speaking, you know, one partner will live significantly longer than the other. Yeah. Um, you know, right now, women, what is it? Uh, go to about age eighty-seven. Men, yeah. eighty-four. Yeah. There's still a three-year gap, but remember, those are just averages. Yeah, no, I, I think you make a, an interesting point, and I get that for if there's a couple and one person takes the primary role in this and the other doesn't, often it's because they're just not all that interested in the in the topic. Um, but it doesn't have to be, you know, finance doesn't have to be just about numbers and math, right? It has to be about goals and objectives and then strategies around those goals and objectives. And I think that's really, that's mm -hmm. that's an important piece for people to think about um, and investing a little bit of time. And even if you don't enjoy it, you don't have to be there. You know, the, the one partner can oft, can often take the lead when you're together talking about the nitty gritties of the math. But yeah. both have to be there for the strategy pieces. Absolutely. I sort of close, you know, when you when the strategy sort of gets to the point where it hazes over like a glazed donut, we have some problems. Yeah. Um, but that's usually a time to either A, we stop or B, we, we just sit down and say, okay, what are we not understanding here? Because, you know, for the most part of it, I find it more of an education piece, Dave. Of course. Where people aren't understanding or people, you know, not this is all foreign to them. And now we're throwing things at them and say, well, when we see that, let's stop for a second. Let's, let's have a conversation. How are you feeling? And more importantly, do you understand what I'm saying or do I have to paint a picture a little bit differently so you get what you're seeing? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that you used a key word there, education. I mean, we've been on this, this rant, uh, this education rant for a long time. And I challenge all sort of industry professionals to, um, to communicate in a way. I just call it English, right? I mean, <laughs> I don't think we, you know, when I go in to see a, a mechanic for my car, Quite frankly, I, it, I'm well beyond my depth of understanding quickly if they start talking about the technical aspects of how my engine works. Yeah. Right? But what I need to know is if there's a problem, what's the problem in a language that I can understand? What do we need to do to fix it? Right. And that can be true of medicine. It could be true of accounting or law. And it's certainly true in our industry. And well, so I think that there needs to be, a, we need to use a common language, that language called interest, uh, sorry, uh, English. English. 
so that we can all put together a general a, a, a strategy that we can all buy into and understand. Absolutely. And then the education piece is to the extent you want to get into the weeds, you can go into the weeds. But you don't have to. I don't need to know how the internal combustion engine works in my vehicle to understand when I put on the, my foot on the gas pedal, I'm moving forward, and I put on the brake, I'm going to slow down and stop. So there has to be, you, you, the, both couples have to be engaged to a level that they understand what's happening. Um, they have to understand risks and gaps and all of those kinds of things. And that's, to me, that education piece uh, in English is what helps people avoid those kind of nasty surprises that you know we heard about a couple of weeks ago. Well, and this is exactly it. When we look at different things, you know, nobody really understands some of the uh, the logic or the or the jargon that uh, you know professionals in in our industry to use. Um, but you know, it, uh, it, to your avail, let's challenge every industry professional. Speak to in a language that our clients can understand. Right, and and as a as a consumer, as a client. Um, I think you have to shake off this feeling of, of feeling stupid if you don't understand when we're speaking in jargon and say, I don't understand what you're talking about. Put it in English for me, right? That's a line I use all the time if I'm dealing with lawyers or accountants or whatever the case may be. I need to understand the English language version of this. I get that you understand the technical details. Don't be afraid to ask that because to me, avoiding these, these ugly um, scenarios is, is really about uh, a process and it's about education. If you, if you follow a process and cover off all of the different steps, ask all the questions that you can, uh, get responses in, in English that you understand, it's going to be hard to run into a situation like that, right? And it may uh, find some gaps that you can, you can fill, uh, whatever the case and, may be. And, you know, there may be some pink jobs and blue jobs that are, you know, part of yeah, things. Totally but when fun. it comes to finance, there should be none of the above. It should be, let's understand where we're at, where we're going, and how we're going to get there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, we're going to talk about that, uh, maybe enough ranting and raving about that. But that is really what our educational series is and the seminar that we run every month. It's about educating people about the different um, goals and objectives that they're going to have, they're going to face, and how they need to talk about it, and then ultimately the strategies that they need to put in place. Let's just remind everybody about that uh, seminar. Yeah, abs absolutely. Um, the seminar coming Tuesday, August 20th, at 7 p.m. at the Carriage House Inn. If you'd like to reserve your seat and join us, um, you can get us at 403-966-8400. Uh, That's 966-8400. Okay, let's talk about, uh, after the break, uh, how to protect your eyesight, my friend. I don't know about you, but as I get older, it gets <laughs> it's getting worse. What are we going to do about that? You're on 770 CHQR and more than money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave on 770 CHQR and more than money. I'm going to talk about something we haven't, uh, a topic we haven't covered, um, at least to my recollection to date. We certainly talk about healthcare a lot, um, but we, I don't think we've ever talked about vision care. And I got to tell you a personal story here is a bit of a setup to this uh, segment. I, uh, not, not too long ago, keep in mind I'm 51, I, uh, I went in to get my eyes checked as I regularly do and I was having some uh, increasing uh, problems in, in terms of seeing short term with my, with my current glasses and I'm nearsighted so I was taking them off and you know reading and so on and so forth and then when I got my eyes checked um, I got you know I got the, um, the feedback that I needed uh, progressive lenses and I thought well I said well what are, what are progressive lenses and it's uh, you know they're different zones for seeing short medium and long term and and I looked at my optometrist in a little bit of horror, and I said, wait a minute, is that what they used to call trifocals? And um, uh, she started to laugh at me and say, yeah, 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 that's what it was. So I went home and told my wife this in, in horror, and I thought, oh, my goodness, uh, you know, here it is. 
I was told this was coming, but I wasn't prepared for it. So we're going to talk about the evolution of eye care uh, and vision care and what we should be doing as we age to make sure it's as healthy as we possibly can keep it. Nobody better to help us understand that than uh, Dr. Sarah Freiberger, who's with IQ Optometry. Uh, Dr. Sarah, welcome. Thanks for having me, Dave. All right. So I, I, I'm assuming that my story is probably not a unique story. These, <laughs> there are, there's a natural evolution of our eyesight, as I understand it. Definitely. So your story is very common for basically it usually starts around 45, and so yeah. 50, 51 is kind of typical when people come in. And just like you said, people have that reaction. It's like <laughs> it's one of those signs that you can't help, but um, it means things are changing, right? <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, I was punched right in the face with that one for sure. <laughs> so, why don't you walk us through some of the, you know, what can we experience? So, we've we've got this this dem- aging demographic, and uh, you know, I'm I'm just outside of the baby boom generation, but close enough that uh, sort of include myself in that. What uh, what do we expect as we march through different stages here? Mm-hmm. So, um, the first thing as we get older, just like you said, is uh, that losing that being ability to see up close. And what happens there is you lose the ability of your lens inside of your eye to change focus, so you can't see that up close anymore. It takes a lot more effort, Um, and that's where people move into progressive lenses usually. Um, And we do have multifocal contacts now too, so people who wear contacts a lot don't have to stop using those. Um, As the vision progresses, the reading gets harder. Um, Your distance usually usually stays the same. but as you get older, um, you're at a higher risk for more eye diseases as well. So one very common one as you get into your 70s, 60s, 70s, uh, is the start of cataracts. Yeah. Um, so that's the clouding of the lens in the eye. Um, and it's one of those things that it's kind of caused by a lifetime of its sun exposure in life. So most people will have to deal with that at some point in their life. Yeah. Um, and then other diseases like macular degeneration are age-related as well. Um, so that's where, as we get older, just like taking care of the rest of your body, it's more important to start taking care of your eyes as well. So uh, give me some anecdotal evidence, or maybe you've got empirical evidence, but um, uh, are, are older adults, older Canadians, are they good at, at getting their eyes checked on a regular basis? They could be better. <laughs> okay, I thought so. Yeah, yeah so... Uh, I mean, we're, we're lucky in Alberta. Once you're over 65, your eye exams are actually fully covered by Alberta Healthcare. Mm-hmm. So there's really no excuse not to. Right. Um, but we know that some people wait until there's a problem before they come in, right? Mm-hmm. And some eye conditions, you don't start having problems until the damage has been done. So um, that's where it's really important to get them checked regularly. Um, and like I said, I don't, I don't know the stats, but um, people definitely could be better about it. <laughs> what, so how often, when you say regularly, what does that mean? So the recommendation is over 65 years old, you should be getting your eyes checked every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I mentioned, that's covered by Alberta Healthcare. Um, under 65, uh, we recommend at least every two years. Right. However, if there's risk factors, so for example, a family history of an eye disease, or you have uh, general health concerns like, like high blood pressure or diabetes, then your optometrist is going to recommend yearly eye exams as well, um, just to make sure we catch things early and keep things under control. So is there anything, um, is there anything new you know, in the research or advancements that, um, that we can be taking advantage of as we get older? Yeah, so eye care um, and optometry is 
constantly there's new research coming sure. out and new knowledge about different things like treatments and also diagnostics and um, different things to help with day-to-day life. So um, something that we have in my clinic that really helps us catch diseases earlier is something called an OCT machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes a, a scan of your retinal layers. So the traditional retinal photo or when we look at the eyes with the microscope only shows us the top layer of the retina but this scan actually shows us a 3d image of the deeper layers of the retina Um, so it's pretty amazing technology and that helps us catch things like macular degeneration earlier and earlier treatment means better vision Um, things like glaucoma we can monitor it more Um, so it just produces better outcomes so the diagnostic tools that we have are getting better and better as we go along and um, and there's more treatment options for these diseases as well coming out because there's tons of research being done on so many different topics right yeah. now so let, mm-hmm. let's say I'm one of the adults uh, older adults that haven't been as diligent as I as I uh, should have been I mean mm-hmm. are th- or, or I don't I for whatever reason I'm just not going to the, get my eyes checked are there warning signs are there things that you know, if somebody's listening to this show, um, that you would say, hmm, okay, that, that should trigger, you know, uh, a visit uh, and further exploration. Mm-hmm, yeah, so you can think of the obvious ones. So if your vision becomes yeah. blurry or you're having more difficulty seeing, that's kind of a, I think most people would yeah. take that as a good indication to come in for an eye exam. I hope so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so those are pretty obvious. But other things you might not think about is if you're having more trouble in low light levels when the... When, when it's dark out or you feel like there's more glare at night, so like driving on the highway, the headlights are bothering you more, those could be indications that it's important to get it checked. Um, irritation in your eyes, burning, um, watering, itchiness, that type of thing can be a sign of dry eye. And I know in Calgary, we have a lot of that. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Just a dry, dry environment. Um, so coming in for any issues like that is important. Um, Headaches are also something that it's worthwhile getting your eyes checked for because we use our vision for so many different things, um, and sometimes it can be related to headaches as well if you're using your eyes, they're not working optimally and whatnot. Mm-hmm. The straining, yeah, the, you know, that's, uh, I think that's a big one. That's, that's how I think I identified it when I was a kid. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was getting headaches, and then my parents started asking me, well, you know, can you see that sign? And they could see it, I couldn't, so one thing led to another. Those are, <laughs> yeah, those are, the, uh, those are the easy ones, but sure, it sure makes a big difference. Um, okay, i got to ask you personally about this whole progressive thing. So when I tried, mm-hmm. when I tried progressive lenses, um, I, I was getting headaches. I was having a hard time with the, sort of the different zones. Mm-hmm. Is, that, uh, is that sort of common? And, you know, is that I just have to suck it up and get used to it? Or what am I going to have to do here? <laughs> yeah, progressives can be tricky. So um, the type of progressive that we use, there's lots of different designs on how quickly it changes from your distance to your intermediate and your near. Um, so sometimes a different design will help you adapt to it easier. Yeah. Um, but most people do take a couple of weeks at least to get used to them because you do have to figure out what part of the lens you look for, through sure. for your computer or your phone or for driving. Yeah. Um, and if you're getting headaches, 
there's probably adjustments that can be done to make it easier um, mm. if you've kind of given them a shot. Um, I'd say 90% of people get used to progressives, no problem, and love them um, or use them regularly. Um, some people have trouble adapting to them, um, and then there's d- different options for them as well. So sometimes using different glasses for your different visual tasks. Yeah. Um, or taking your glasses off for reading, like you said you were doing before, (laughs) although that can get annoying. Um, Or like I said, changing the design of the progressive lens can help as well. I'll have to give it another try because I'm at that point. I I couldn't do the progress. I did it for a month, and it was just Mm -hmm. giving me headaches. So then I've got my regular distance. I've got Mm -hmm. my computer glasses. Ah, yes. (laughs) Yeah, and then I effectively take, when I'm reading, I have to take my glasses off. But here's my problem now. I'm leaving my glasses everywhere. I can't find them. It's crazy. It's driving me nuts. (laughs) And I don't think you want the chain around your neck, hey? (laughs) No, not yet, please. (laughs) Sarah, we've got to leave it there. Thanks for all your input, and thanks for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. uh, We've been joined by Dr. Sarah Feinberger, uh, sorry, Freiberger, um, who's with uh, IQ Optometry. You can give her a call if you have any of those problems, and she'll help you out. Um, okay, uh, we got to. Uh, I just want to remind everybody about our upcoming um, seminar, which will be on August twentieth at seven o'clock at the Carriage House Inn. So everybody down south, we look forward to seeing you then. Give us a call at nine six six eighty four hundred, or go to pkag.ca. Stick around after the break. You're going to hear about how investment losses may be able to save you on taxes. You're on seven seventy CHQR and more than money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and No Faisal today. Um, Andrew was with us earlier. He's had to step out right now. And it's going to be uh, myself and Jamie Golan back. We're going to talk a little bit about taxes. I mean, uh, Faisal, Andrew, and I often talk about um, the importance of proper tax planning. Uh, most of us are not experts in uh, in tax, but the implication, you know, you need somebody on your team that is because there are so many rules and so many things that we need to know to be able to take advantage of properly in, in our uh, preparation of our taxes to make sure that you maximize the benefit for yourself. Now, Jamie Golenbeck is the Managing Director, Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC Financial Planning and Advice. He's a regular contributor to our show. And uh, Jamie, listen, I want to welcome you back. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Um, I, I want to talk about uh, interest deductibility. So um, if you take a loan um, uh, for the purposes of investment, okay, whether that's uh, um, investment for uh, you know, income or business investment for income, um, there is a, a provision that allows you to write off the expense, the interest expense on that. So can you just, from a high-level perspective, give us what the tax law says about this. And then there's a, um, a specific case that you wrote about this uh, this past week that I want to talk about. Sure, absolutely. So, so the general rule, I think as most people would know, is that if you borrow money and you use that money for the purpose of investing or to start a business or even use it in business operation, you can deduct the interest. And the logic behind that, the policy reason, is because you're incurring an expense to basically generate taxable income. So in other words, you're borrowing money to buy shares. Um, and those shares pay dividends. Then, of course, you're including the dividends as income, and you can write off the interest expense. So that's a rule that's been around for a long time. Uh, it's very common in the uh, business world, certainly, uh, when companies borrow money and they, they borrow on debt and they're writing off the interest expense against their net income. But on the individual retail level, for investors... Uh, if we're using a margin account uh, and we're investing, then that margin interest is tax deductible. If we're using a line of credit and that line of credit is being used for investments, and then we're able to deduct that interest uh, on our tax return. 
Um, now, just just from a sort of mechanics perspective, Jamie, you you have to be able to show the the linkages between this, correct? So the, the, it has to be fairly clean. Um, how do you suggest people, you know, when they borrow to do that, if they're mixing it with other things that they've used their line of credit for? What what do they need to be aware? Yeah, of? well, they're very very careful. You got to be very careful when it comes to the tracing. The courts have been very clear that you've got to show a direct tracing. So it's not good enough to say, I've got a loan over here for 100000 I've got 100000 investments, so therefore, theoretically, I should be writing off my interest. That's not good enough. You actually have to show that the physical loan proceeds were used to buy investments. So on a margin account, it's very simple. You borrow on margin, you buy the investment, you're done. If you're using a line of credit, you better make sure there's nothing else in that line of credit. And what we recommend uh, people to do is if they've got a line of credit, typically on a home, let's say that's a secured line of credit, we tell people to bifurcate. In other words, divide that line of credit into two. Most financial institutions will do that. I know that uh, we do it at CIBC. Um, You can have the same line of credit divided into two sub-accounts so that one of them you could use for home renovations. These are non-deductible interest-type expenses. But the other account you use solely for the purpose of investing, and you write off your interest. CRA is very, very particular. They want to see a paper trail. They want to see the check going from the loan account into the investment account uh, to be able to, if they ever look at it, uh, uphold your interest deductibility. Yeah, okay. Okay, so establishing that, um, sometimes the investments we make uh, don't work out the way we want them to work out. So let's um, let me propose a situation where it's either a business uh, or it's an investment that you uh, borrowed for, and it didn't quite go the way you wanted to. My question to you is: uh, Can you continue the interest deductibility on the money that you borrowed for that uh, investment uh, into the future, even if that investment no longer exists or the business you know is defunct or is not around? Quick answer is yes. I mean, believe it or not, it's not intuitive because you think that if you're borrowing money for earning income and you can no longer ever earn income because the investment is, the investment has gone belly up or the business has gone bankrupt, that so you wouldn't be able to deduct the interest. That's not true. Uh, there is a rule that came into place, I believe it was in 1994 or so, um, that uh, I sometimes I call it the BREEX rule. If anyone remembers the BREEX uh, uh, gold mining issue back in the 90s, uh, where basically it turned out to be a falsified gold reports and the company went bankrupt at the end of the day. But in other words, the example I like to give is if you borrowed money to invest in Briax, uh and that loan is still outstanding today, you can still write off the interest because of the rule in the income tax called the loss of source rule. And the loss of source rule says if the original intention of the loan and then that loan was used for the purpose of earning income, whether it's investment income or business income, then even if that investment goes to zero or you wind down that business, if that loan is still outstanding, you're still paying interest, that interest is still tax deductible. Now, sometimes CRA um, uh, you know, questions these things, but this, this loss of source rule has been tested recently in a case that you wrote about. That's right. So you know, very briefly, I just wrote an article about a recent case in the last month or so uh, about an individual who had a business and effectively, he shut down his business and became an employee somewhere else. Um, but what he did is, while he was running his business, it was a, really an accounting firm, and he was running it as a sole proprietor, and he paid for all the expenses, the rent, the office supplies, travel from his line of credit. And I think he hit around $90,000 of line of credit. And then what happened, he ultimately shuttered the business. But he still had the line of credit. So 10 years later or so, 
he's still writing off the interest. CRA challenges it, saying, well, you know, we're not sure some of those expenses are valid. And the judge is like, we don't care about the expenses. That was 10 years ago. You didn't audit the expenses 10 years ago. We're auditing the interest today. The money was borrowed for the purpose of earning investment income, and therefore you can continue to write off the interest. And so we won the case. And it just shows you that the courts are uh, looking favorably towards the rule. And if it's done properly and you've dotted the I's, crossed the T's, showed the direct tracing, as we talked about before, then you should still be able to write off the interest on that loan if the original purpose was to earn investment or business income. Yeah, and then it goes back, I think, to the comment you made uh, made earlier. It's really important that it's properly documented, right? There's a paper trail. Ultimately, um, if you get challenged on these things by CRA and you need to fight this, you, you've got to have proper documentation. It's got to be clear line of sight where they can see the money moving for the purposes that it's intended against the write-off. And, um, you know, I don't think we can add much more to that. It is, it's critical that people keep uh, accurate records if, uh, even if they're applying the rules properly, if they don't have those accurate records, um, it can be called into question and, and denied. Well, that's right. And I'll just give you one final tip. I mean, uh, you know, this goes for the mortgage too. People say, oh, can't, can't write off mortgage interest in Canada. Can't do it, right? And I say, well, it depends. And what if you have some investments and you also have a mortgage? Uh, well, I'm paying interest on my uh, mortgage. I also have investments, so I should be able to write it up. Well, again, there is a, a technique that you can do. You can do a swap. Uh, and what we sometimes tell people is if you have non-registered investments and you have a mortgage, why don't you sell your non-registered investments, depending on the tax consequences of selling it. You might have capital gains tax. depends on, on that situation. Yeah. Uh, and then pay off the mortgage, then get a secured line of credit against the home and buy back those same investments. And what you've done effectively is made your mortgage interest tax deductible. But again, the tracing is important. That's what we already talked about. You can't just say notionally, well, I've got some mortgage interest. I've got some investments. I can write it off. That does not work. You've got to show the direct tracing, as we've said. Jamie, I want to thank you again for your time and uh, you know taking complex tax and putting it in English for us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. We've been joined by Jamie Golenbeck, Managing Director, Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC Financial Planning and Advice. Um, we're going to talk more about uh, about tax. Tax uh, impacts uh, almost every aspect of our retirement, certainly from a financial perspective. And I might even argue that for most people, uh, tax is going to be the single biggest uh, expense item that they face throughout their entire uh, their retirement. So we've got to be savvy about this. Planning's important. And as Jamie said, uh, obviously specific to the case he was talking about, but it has to be structured properly so that there's clear line of sight uh, should you ever be challenged on uh, on even the rules that are in place because the CRA will do that. Anyways, that's part of what we're going to talk about. I mean, this whole complex notion of transitioning to and living in retirement, how tax impacts us, that's the educational purpose behind our seminar. Our next one is coming up on Tuesday, August the 20th. Now, it's at 7 o'clock. It's one hour. It's going to be held at the Carriage House in for all of you Calgarians and uh, people south of Calgary. We'd love to see you there. You need to give us a call to register for that at 966-8400. That's 403-966-8400 or go to pkag.ca. Now stay tuned after the break. We're going to discuss how the baby boom generation is reshaping the housing market in retirement. You're on 770 CHQR and more than money. Welcome back here with Dave on 770 CHQR and more than money. Uh, Real estate is a topic uh, that 
comes up often in conversations with clients. And for various reasons. It could be uh, as a legacy asset. It could be people want to draw equity on it. They could use that for healthcare costs. Um, they might be downsizing. Oh, a whole bunch of things. But this baby boom demographic has undoubtedly shaped the uh, the real estate market as um, you know they were having families and growing, uh, and now they're getting older and likely uh, reshaping it uh, again. So let's just take a look at that and and see what impacts uh, this transition of that baby boom uh, demographic is having on the real estate market. We've got a terrific guest going to help us uh, put a little perspective to this. Murtaza Hader, he's a professor real estate um, uh, real estate management at Ryerson University. Murtaza, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Okay, so we got a lot of uh, sort of a big topic to cover in a relatively short period of time, but I'm interested maybe just at a high level if you can comment on what you're seeing um, in the real estate market. How are the demographics, this baby boom generation, and even those behind it, how are they changing the real estate market in Canada? So uh, in a recent column in the Financial Post, what we analyzed is uh, we looked at the how um, as the baby boomers age and the older baby boomers are retiring and the bulk is still going to retire in the future, our goal was to see how this would impact the housing markets. And we are of the view that uh, there are several uh, interesting uh, concepts and trends that we observe. First is the age-in-place concept. That is, uh, that the service done by Statistics Canada asking the young seniors and older seniors about their future housing needs and how they see them evolving. Um, it turns out that many, if not most, preferred aging in place. That is to continue living in the houses they owned um, or they lived in in neighborhoods that they are most familiar with. And then the, when they were asked about their future needs, when they would require that they would retire, would they be moving into um, smaller units, downsizing? And it appears that aging in place was still continues to be the, the, the dominant uh, characteristics. The okay. other thing which was very interesting is that uh, uh, most young and old seniors, uh, around 80% of those, uh, reported owning their homes. So you have two big trends. Home ownership is dominant in, in seniors, um, and also um, their future housing needs are characterized by aging in place. So these two were the big, big trends. So... What does it mean? It, does it mean that people would soon be looking for retirement homes? And the answer to this is not in the near future. The baby boomers would uh, are likely to increase the demand for such housing, but not up until maybe 2030 or so when the bulk will retire and would have reached a stage where they would need assisted housing. So right. um, in, the, in the near future, um, there's not going to be much demand for, um, uh, uh, much higher demand for um um, assisted housing, it would continue to be the case of aging in place. I, you know, I, I guess I'm not surprised uh, anecdotally when we speak to people in Calgary and clients, we don't see a lot of people making that transition. So uh, I suppose I'm not surprised by that. It is an interesting uh, uh, potential problem from a development perspective if, you know, we're going to have this massive flood at some point where people just, you know, get beyond the ability where it's maybe not safe to stay in their home, you know, will there be will there be residences available at that time? I'm interested to know if the sort of the research looked at uh, at that particular problem or potential problem. So our demographics are very similar to those that are in the United States, 
and and the, the trends there are also very similar. And the forecast that we saw for the United States, which we believe applied to a very large extent to Canada, mm-hmm. is that this flux of or the, the higher demand for assisted housing is going to be in the late 2020s or early 2030. So we do have about a decade to plan for such an outcome when a large number of baby boomers would have um, uh, would have retired and reached a stage where they would need assisted house assisted housing, but that doesn't mean that they would actually would like to be in in dedicated housing units where they would need so, um, um, care. And yeah. I think the the criteria that the Statistics Canada have used in the past is that if you need maybe ninety minutes of care. Um, or more than you're in one category. And if you need fewer than 90 minutes of care, then you are sort of in an independent um, living category. So I think that the demand would still be in the independent living category, that there is some sort of communal meals and you're able to live on your own. Um, So it's not that kind of the end of life kind of housing demand that you would see in 2030s. At the same time, if you fast forward to 2030, a, a large number of seniors who would then move out of their residences to some sort of uh, more um, a lifestyle that will facilitate their their health and and living conditions. Um, When they would leave those big homes, they would increase the supply of larger homes. And at that moment, around late 2020s and early 2030s, you would see a a supply of larger homes, um, which would then be very good for the, the older millennials, because at that time, 2030s, the older millennials would have their children mm-hmm. and they will be looking actively for places to grow their own families and raise their own children. So this all seems to be in step, um, so not changing uh, drastically the housing supply and demand. We just have to be mindful of the, uh, of the slight changes that will appear in, in a decade or so. Yeah, I, I, that's an interesting um, sort of timeline that you've laid forward. The other thing that, that people often assume is this notion of downsizing for people. And um, clearly your research is saying that, you know, people are, aren't are downsizing, they're not leaving the, the homes that they've yeah, raised Yeah, so the empty nester syndrome, right? Yeah. So, so there used to be a lot of talk about it about 20 years ago that seniors, as soon as they will retire, will be empty nesters. The kids would have left the university and beyond, and they would then decide, okay, that's it. We're going to pack up and we're going to sell the big house and move into a condominium mm-hmm. sometime somewhere near downtown. That has not happened to that extent. And, and initially it started off, but then people realized that downtown, especially downtowns in Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal, are pretty noisy places. And, and it's not maybe in, in, in line with the lifestyle that the seniors were used to. Um, so going forward, this, this downsizing, I think, will be necessitated by health conditions rather than by lifestyle conditions. So it wouldn't be like, I'm an empty, we are empty nesters, let's do something interesting, move to somewhere else, downsize. But it would be necessitated by health-related conditions where you say you have to move to your facility where there is some sort of assistance uh, available um, in terms of communal meals uh, and some um, upkeep and maintenance of the units. Um, and, and so, again, um, that empty nester syndrome would, did not end up creating that demand of smaller units that uh, many speculated 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, there'll be lots of people sort of listening to this and nodding their heads and say, yeah, yeah, that, you know, that, uh, that's me. I'm not moving out of my place. And it's, it's interesting how many people from a financial planning perspective often cite the equity in their homes, you know, taking the equity homes on a downsize as a potential source of lifestyle capital. And uh, to your point, we just we haven't seen that. And quite frankly, those that do 
change homes, they call it downsizing, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a lower um, uh, a lower priced or a lower valued property. It might be something smaller and more manageable, but it could be in a, uh, a neighborhood that's superior to where they at. So we haven't seen that uh, assumption play out the way it's uh, it's been proposed either. One last thing, we've got uh, maybe a minute, minute and a half or so. Uh, Mertesa, I'm, I'm interested for people that are thinking through this right now. Um, what 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 should baby boomers be thinking about realistically when they're when they're looking at their housing situation over the next ten or fifteen years? I think the baby boomers must realize that unlike the previous generations, they are healthier than the seniors in the past. So they fortunately will be seniors, but seniors for a very long time. And as they look at these trade-offs between selling and renting and scaling down or or, or, or um, making similar decisions, they have to look. They have to realize that the decisions they will make now will have an impact over a decade or more because they will be seniors for a very long time. So they should be mindful of the fact that their decisions have a very long-term impact. And and as they uh, do these trade-offs or if, if they were trying to build some spreadsheets, trying to figure out the balance between, you know, the trade-off between renting and owning and and, and, and they, sh- they should realize that um, they may be able to take the equity out of their homes, but then... We are planning for 20 years. And yeah. if you look around and you look at other investment opportunities and look at the interest rates right now, other investments are not giving the kind of returns that people were used to getting 20, 30, 40 years ago. So they have to be very careful in making these decisions. Well, they have to leave it there. Murtaza, thank you very much for your time today. Pleasure. Take care. We've been joined by Murtaza Hader, who is a professor at real estate management at Ryerson University, and there's some food for thought for sure. Uh, I want to remind everybody that the the lifestyle plan uh, goes well beyond just stocks and bonds. So we're going to talk about that lifestyle plan and how to incorporate these sort of big picture decisions into what your lifestyle is going to look like and how to finance that through the um, you know through that long period of time that Murtaza had uh, referred to. And that's going to take place at our next seminar coming up Tuesday, August the 20th, 7 o'clock at the Carriage House Inn. Give us a call at 966-8400 or go to pkag.ca if you'd like to register for that. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money. You're on 770 CHQR. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.